Green bell peppers might get a bad culinary rap these days, but they're a key ingredient in many cuisines, including the two closest to me, Cajun and Creole cooking. We'll cut up some holy trinity to make the New Orleans classic griots and grits. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. pepper in its green form is a pretty divisive vegetable. The ripe red, orange, and yellow versions get a lot of love from everyone with their sweet and bright flavor. Unripe greens, though, even though they're the number one selling pepper in the U.S., a lot of people straight up hate them. It's not hard to see why. They have a sharp, bitter flavor when raw and acquire a distinct funk under heat. And personally, I'm not crazy about them raw, although I don't avoid them. And I love them in stews, stir-fries, and fajitas, but not on pizza. The particular flavor of a green bell pepper is mainly due to a chemical compound called a pyrazine. A molecule of carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen, there is a vast array of these compounds and their powerful drivers of flavor perception. For one thing, the human nose is extremely sensitive to them. We can detect minute quantities, and large amounts quickly become dominant. There are two major types, alkyl pyrazine and methoxypyrazine. Alkyl pyrazines comprise many of the roasty, coffee, bakery aromas that are considered among the most universally beloved smells in the kitchen. Nuts, malt, potatoes, tea, cheese, shrimp, all these foods are high in alkyl pyrazines. Methoxypyrazines are the others. Leafy, grassy, herbaceous, vegetal, these are the dead giveaways that something is high in one of them. They tend to be specific to certain fruits and vegetables as well, and whether or not a person likes a particular food often depends upon which pyrazine it contains. Asparagus and beets, two other divisive foods, are heavy in similar pyrazines to the one in bell pepper. They're found in wines too, especially the varietals that make up Bordeaux, Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and a few others. In white wines, they can be a positive, but are often, though not always, considered a defect in red wines. Their presence depends considerably on growing practices and weather. An abundance of leaves, for instance, can produce an abundance of leafy green flavor in the finished wine. You can go to the website of any flavor manufacturer and find a long list of available pyrazines to choose from, each imparting a specific flavor, including green bell pepper. In the trade, though, you're looking for the name Grindstaff Pyrazine. If you want to get scientific about it, you want to ask for 3-isobutyl-2-methoxypyrazine. That will get you what you seek. As the pepper ripens, though, the pyrazines fade away and other flavor molecules become prominent, and it's those that give red, orange, yellow, and purple bells their characteristic fruity flavors, bright and sweet and citrusy. They're the ones that get most of the attention these days because bright and sweet and citrusy 
are much more appealing to many people than earthy, bitter funk. Plus, they come in a bunch of colors that look good in pictures, better than green anyway, and they have more vitamin C in case you were worried about scurvy. Nobody hates the ripe bell peppers, except perhaps chili heads. The complete lack of capsaicin in bell peppers means they serve as the zero point on the Scoville heat scale. Someone out there loves them, though, because the U.S. is only number five in world production, behind China at number one, with Mexico, Indonesia, and Turkey behind. Per capita consumption of bell peppers in the U.S. has steadily risen, with the average person consuming almost 12 pounds per year. Green peppers have the largest market share of any one color, but the various colors of ripe peppers together outsell them. No one writes articles about how much they hate yellow peppers or red peppers. But it's not easy being green. Green peppers as a topic is really just an excuse to make some kind of South Louisiana food <laughs> because it is uh, obviously, as we have talked about many times, as you are and as you are no doubt well aware, green peppers are part of the legendary holy trinity of Cajun and Creole cuisine, replacing carrots in the traditional French mirepoix. What they do is they remove the sweetness of carrots. They give the mirepoix kind of an earthy, funky, a uh, little bit of a bitter flavor. Typically, green peppers will be will have kind of a bitter characteristic, but a lot of earth, a lot of like real sort of funk. A lot of people don't like them, especially on their own, because they, they're not sweet like a once a pepper starts to ripen. And one thing I will say is even if you think you don't like green peppers, don't substitute them in Cajun cooking because red peppers do not taste the same. They give it all of a sudden it has a bunch of high notes, which aren't really appropriate. It's okay. I think I kind of feel like, especially with like a jambalaya, it's okay to throw in part red pepper. You know, it does give it kind of a little toppy note that otherwise wouldn't be there. But for just about anything else, avoid the red pepper, stick to the green, unless, unless you are, and I've talked about this on the show before too, unless you are cooking salmon, because salmon and green peppers are disgusting together. So if you're making something Louisiana and you're, you want to make it with salmon, 100% of the time, uh, use red peppers because it's the only way it's even going to taste good. And even then it might not be a success because salmon is a, salmon has a very peculiar and particular flavor and it doesn't always work with everything. Like I've, even salmon and gumbo isn't very good or jambalaya to me. There are a few dishes that I've made work, um, but they typically have to have, they typically have to be fairly rich and buttery on their own. Um, New Orleans cooking, Creole cooking actually works a lot better with salmon, I've found. Real Cajun cooking, it's kind of iffy. The flavors just don't really work together that well. And when you take the green peppers out of some of those dishes, especially kind of the darker, heavier ones, it's just not the same and, and they don't quite hold together as well. So because I'm a lucky guy and I have some lard made out of genuine Alaskan pig, that's what I'm going to use here in the base. This is, uh, so what I'm going to be making here is pretty classic dish most famous nowadays in New Orleans um, where it's on like every brunch menu in the city and we're gonna be making griots and all griots really is is pieces is braised beef smothered beef pretty intense gravy and it's served usually these days particularly if you get it in a restaurant it's almost always served with grits uh, you can serve it over rice too but most of the time these days you find it in its form served over grits particularly for brunch particularly in New Orleans. And all it is is beef 
Traditionally, steaks, usually most of the older griot recipes that I've seen call for, call for round steak. Round steak's kind of lame. <laughs> it's just doesn't, it's not that flavorful on its own. Like top round's okay, um, but I think it makes a better roast beef than something that you really want to stand up to a nice rich sauce and have some integrity of its own. Round steak's great schnitzel, it's great roast beef. Um, unless it's eye around or bottom round, those are those are really best suited for meatloaf. Um, they're all right if schnitzel that use a really a really rich sauce or something on top of them, that just kind of covers up their blandness. But what I like to make griots out of is uh, more traditional braising cuts, especially short ribs or what I have today, which are some beautiful shanks that I got, and these are local. Alaskan shanks. I don't know if they're from Homer or if they're from up the road, but they are Alaskan. They're beautiful. They're about probably an inch thick, a nice chunk of marrow bone, some, a bunch of connective tissue. They're going to be delicious. They're going to braise in here. Now, what I just have done is sprinkled a little salt on top of them and a little bit of flour. Uh, this dish does not get a roux. I'm sure some people make it with a roux, but most most places you'll see it doesn't get a roux So it's gonna have a little bit of a thinner sauce and it's not gonna have that intense nuttiness of a roux And that's fairly common actually with a lot of beef based um, Cookery down there is that a lot of times if something is a beef recipe It won't it'll either it either won't get a roux or the roux will be kind of De-emphasized in this case any flour any thickening power is gonna come from just flouring the outside of the shanks which I have done and now I'm gonna salt them and brown them in my beautiful pork fat. And while they are browning, I will chop my mirepoix and we'll carry on. So I got one onion, probably two stalks of celery and one small bell pepper here, which should get me in the ballpark of the generally accepted correct ratio of two parts onion to one part celery to one and a half part bell pepper. You can you can adjust that, you know, as you as you please, but really there's no reason to. That's a pretty it's a classic risk <laughs> it's a classic ratio for a reason. It really works well. Dicing my onion in the proper manner, cut it in half, cut it in half, peel the outside, make longitudinal cuts part way through down to, but not quite all the way to the root. You leave the root end on, cut the top part off, cut longitudinally around like you're cutting down lines of longitude on the globe. Then cut parallel to the work surface two or three times, depending on the size of the onion. And then cut the whole thing into dice. Always the best way to chop an onion, unless you really specifically need some other kind of look. The dog, who is a puppy, has decided to position herself in a very poor location for my purposes. And if I was not in the middle of recording the show, I would attempt to position her in the correct place. But I don't want to waste a bunch of time doing that. Because I got griots browning, I got things happening, I will work around her. You fight your battles with puppies. Sometimes they're just gonna be in the way. Now I'm dicing my green bell pepper and man, there's so many ways of doing this and I have finally, I think, standardized after many years of doing this multiple different ways. On the fairly straightforward, make four cuts down the bell pepper, 
straight down the sides with the bell pepper sitting upright and cut the four panels off, which leaves basically just the top and the bottom and nothing else. Cut out the ribs, cut the pepper into strips, cut it into dice as fine as you need it. And that's pretty much all that I do now. I've done all kind of goofy things. I've cut around the peppers, you know, to get one, one big flat section of pepper that you then cut out, <laughs> that you then cut into strips and, and dice. I've cut the pepper in half and made weird random cuts. But this is, this is my system now and, and it works and I really can't remember where I picked it up. Works better. Don't just randomly chop the pepper and let it fall apart and then cut it into a bunch of random sizes, you know. It's okay to be a little bit systematic in your approach to your cutting so that you actually do get nice looking, reasonably evenly sized chunks. It does make a difference in the end. If your chunks are all different sizes, then some of them will just about melt into the sauce like they're supposed to, and then some of them will just be big chunks of random pepper or whatever, which is much less appealing to actually eat. Get my celery. And I do always, oh look there, see the dog realize that it's much less comfortable to be in the way than out of the way. And now she is out of the way. She's a very good girl. So now I'm gonna cut my celery and as always, I keep my celery and my bell pepper in one pile and my onion in, the, in another because I cook my onion for longer than I cook my celery and, I, and my bell pepper. So these are with shanks. Shanks are awesome. Short ribs really are kind of maybe my favorite thing to cook for griots. Um, short ribs are phenomenal in this dish. They're so rich, they're so fatty. So much connective tissue. But shanks, shanks are a close second. So once these guys get a nice brown on them, nice crispiness, flour browns a little bit. Some of the flour, some of the excess flours dripped in and made, you know, something vaguely resembling a roux. Um, there's some fawn on the bottom. So now, I'm gonna drop my onions in here. And turn it down a little bit. Add a little salt, a couple of pinches. Start organizing some of the rest of my ingredients. So usually griots, the sauce will include some tomatoes. It's not like a full on tomato sauce um, in the sense that you want really outrageous tomato flavor, but it will usually get at least a few whole tomatoes cooked down kind of with the, once the trinity goes in, then you'll, you'll cook the potato, or the, the potatoes. Cook the tomatoes down a little bit. Uh, sometimes, if I had some, I would put some tomato paste in here, but I thought I had some, and turns out I don't. It's not gonna get tomato paste, which is not gonna be the end of the world. It'll lose a tiny bit of depth of flavor. That, can I get it back some other way? What do we got here? Oh, oh wait, no, I do have a little, I do have a little bit of tomato paste. In fact, I have just enough to make this work. I buy them in the little tubes. I like them better because they don't mold and go bad. You can either get it in the can or you can get it in the tube. The can's fine if you're making like a big batch of something and you need the whole can, but it's so rare that you actually need the whole can that I, I wind up, I like buying the little tubes of it and they last forever. You know, unlike the can, which will, after a little while, it always seems to mold on me before I can use it all. And for those of you who might be listening who perhaps are not particularly savvy cooks, tomato paste is very, 
very intense. It's not the same thing as tomato sauce. And the reason that I know that is because before I knew anything, I made eggplant parmesan to impress a girl. I knew that there was tomato paste and I knew that there was tomato sauce. And what I kind of thought was that maybe tomato paste was like a more intense tomato sauce. You know, it was just like a little more flavorful, a little, a little zazzier. And so I used all tomato paste in this eggplant parmesan that I made for her. And uh, she was, she didn't say anything about it, <laughs> but I, I distinctly remember eating it and there was kind of a silence at the table and it was, I was eating it and I was like, man, there is something that is not right about this. And the thing that is not right is that tomato paste is extremely intense. It is extremely concentrated and it is overpowering if you use it in the quantities that you would ordinarily use tomato sauce. Always remember that. Learn from the mistakes that I made when I knew nothing about cooking. Because we all, we all started somewhere at the point of knowing nothing about cooking. And there are many disasters along the way. In fact, a lot of the things that, you know, not just I say in this show, but other people, you know, other people who've been cooking for a long time in a lot of situations, they'll tell you something and you'll be like, ah, that doesn't, whatever, that doesn't matter. But always remember that it's a little bit like on the warnings of like powerful household chemicals. Those warnings are there because somebody didn't heed them and bad things happen. It's not that we know everything and it's not that we're never wrong. It's just that when you've been cooking for a while, you make mistakes and you learn from those mistakes. So tomato paste, just looking at, every time I look at tomato paste, every single time, I look, about, look at it, think about it, walk past it in the grocery store, I think back to that eggplant Parmesan that I made and I really feel bad. So <laughs> Rachel, if you happen to hear this, I'm still, you know, 20 something years later, I'm still really sorry about it. <laughs> sorry for subjecting you to, uh, to that eggplant Parmesan. All right, I have my, my Trinity is all going, going to town now. I gotta grab some garlic and I still have not run out of this beautiful garlic that I grew over the summer. I'm very excited that I have not run out of it, but I'm looking at it and I'm like, I'm probably gonna run out. It might make it through the first week in January. I'm already kind of committed to this year's garlic because I've already planted it and I, I don't think I planted enough. At the end of this summer, we'll plant a lot more garlic because it's so much better than the supermarket stuff. I mean, it's just ridiculous how much better it is. Like, you know about this garlic. It's the kind of garlic that makes you understand why garlic was in, had such a shady reputation for so long among people that don't like flavor because uh, this stuff is pungent, really, really pungent. It gets all over your hands. You still smell it hours later. Fantastic. So I'm gonna grow more garlic next year, way more. I got my first seed catalog in the mail just a few days ago, and it was very exciting. I'm sure anybody that is a gardener knows the feeling because they all start coming in in December and early January when it's super dark. And this particular winter, the weather's been like half awesome and half just terrible and rainy. This is the grim time of year, especially this year. You know, this is not this is not a Christmas is really easy to get excited about, but you get that first seed catalog and you're like, wait a minute. Think about next summer a little bit. Start planning out what next year's garden's gonna look like. It's all fun. You haven't planted stuff and then it becomes a disaster because you <laughs> either planted something wrong or you don't get around to harvesting it correctly. And it's all potential right now. It's all just seed catalogs. You don't even have seeds yet. 
All right, this is beginning to smell like south of Alexandria. Open my can of tomatoes, which unfortunately they're not San Marzano's, but so it goes. With tomato paste, it's pretty much always a good idea to cook it down just a little bit, to saute it with everything else. It'll go from kind of a bright red to sort of a dark brick red, and that's what you want. It gives it just a little extra little shot of sort of caramelized flavor. Without it, sometimes it can taste too tinny. With it, it just kind of sits in the bottom of the dish. All right, so now I got this next ingredient is something that a lot of, resp a lot of griot recipes don't really call for uh, necessarily for reasons which I don't understand. And I have no idea if, uh, if he ever made this on his show. He probably did because he made everything. Since I am some kind of a spiritual child of the legendary Justin Wilson, who you may or may not remember from public television many years ago, who would always let you know if you were wondering whether or not something would be good, he would of course say that it was gonna be good. And I guarantee, now you remember who Justin Wilson is. And he would always, 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 always add a little wine. So I'm gonna start this with a little wine. And this is just a, this is my basic sort of everyday wine. But this just gets a little splash. Maybe, that's maybe a glass, total, tops. Now if I had beef broth, I would use beef broth. If I had a really intense pork broth, I would use that. But I don't, I don't even have homemade chicken stock right now. I just have regular plain old chicken stock. And I'm gonna add a little bit of that. And speaking of things that you didn't really understand when you were younger, I used to have trouble making red wine sauces because when I, when I didn't know what I was doing, because I would, you know, you would always hear like reduce wine, reduce the wine, reduce the wine. But it turns out that red wine, if you reduce red wine alone, it gets kind of a weird metallic taste, but it's fairly common that that happens. And it used to happen to me a lot. I'd make this reduction of, you know, pretty lame reductions all the time because I didn't know what I was doing of, you know, red wine with like a couple of aromatics and maybe some butter or something. And think I was making some fancy sauce and it would come out kind of bad tasting and it turns out that the tannins in red wine if you reduce the if you reduce the wine by itself it tends to react rather badly but if you reduce it in the context of a protein like a chicken stock or any other kind of stock that tempers the this problem and it, it actually eliminates this problem and now I'm going to add my tomatoes. And these are just whole canned tomatoes. And I just want to cook these down just a little bit. Cook a little of water out of them. Get uh, some of the... Get them to maybe darken up in flavor a little bit. You know, I used to use chopped or diced tomatoes pretty much exclusively because I really didn't think there was much of a difference. But I always noticed... I noticed, and I never really understood why, the diced tomatoes and the chopped tomatoes always tended to sort of keep their shape a little more. Even in sauces where I kind of wanted to have more of a chunky um, and varied tomato size, like, and wanted some of the tomato pulp to kind of melt into the sauce. Like, it never really seemed like it did with uh, canned and chopped tomatoes. And it turned out many years later that I discovered that that was in fact right. And ever since I learned that there is, in fact, an, there's a particular additive, and I don't recall what it is, 
because I don't have any, any diced tomatoes at the house anymore to check, there's a particular additive that's added to diced tomatoes in particular that uh, essentially helps the tomato keep its form so it doesn't deform and doesn't melt into the sauce, which is great for some presentations and not so great for others. Um, but whole tomatoes don't have that, so you can smush them up and they'll eventually dissolve. Um, this particular brand that I have right now, I don't really like them because the ends are always really hard. One nice thing about the San Marzano's is that the ends are almost always kind of soft too and they just melt right into the sauce. But these, I always wind up having to pull them out at the end. But you get what you pay for, you know? So I'm just gonna cook these tomatoes down for just a minute. And I'm only using the tomatoes. I'm not using any of the juice or sauce that they're packed with because I've already got plenty of uh, juice right now. In fact, some of this juice is gonna have to reduce. At the end of the cook, I just hand crush them into the, into the skillet. I don't chop them or anything. You could chop them, but since this kind of pureed, kind of rustic, chunky texture is what I'm looking for, I don't bother chopping. Plus it's more fun to just squeeze them in there. I think so anyway. So now I've got a full pot ready for my griots. And it's very lovely looking. There's some chunks of tomatoes, little chunks of mirepoix or of Holy Trinity. I need a little more seasoning before I drop my griots though. So I'm gonna need, I know I'm gonna need a little more salt because I always need more salt until you don't. A little South Louisiana fish sauce, AKA Lee and Perrin's Worcestershire sauce and a little Tabasco, which again shines as an ingredient, but is pretty mediocre in my opinion as a hot sauce. A little Tabasco, a little dried thyme, some paprika. All of these spices, this is pretty much the Cajun spice kitchen. Paprika, a little dash of cayenne, not too much. I don't want this to be hot. I just want the cayenne to be a little piquant. If you're familiar with a lot of Cajun cooking, oh, let me add a bay leaf here. If you're familiar with a lot of Cajun cooking, you'll be like, man, this dish looks like a lot of them. <laughs> or you know, New Orleans cooking too. And it's true, they all, there are a lot of dishes that are sort of a variation on this. Um, sauce piquant, not that different. It's just you use more tomatoes and a lot, and you use chili peppers, um, which you don't use in this. There's a lot of dishes that are fairly similar. All right, now I'm gonna immerse my beautiful beef shank in this beautiful gravy, cover it so that it will just sit in this hot bath of beauty. Pile some stuff on top of it. And this is going to be good to go. And I'm going to cook this on the stove top. You could cook this in the oven if you wanted to. So it is a braise and braises can be done either successfully on the stove top or in the oven. But a lot of times if I have one, one that's like this where the liquid, it's kind of naturally a little more juicy than I want it to be, I will very often cook them on the stovetop with the lid slightly cracked so that we're not losing too much liquid but we're gonna we're gonna reduce a little bit plus having that one more intense heat source tends to keep things kind of bubbling and happening a little quicker especially for kind of a shorter braise like this like this will probably only take like an hour uh, these shanks probably won't probably probably will be done in an hour or so it might take a little longer but they're they're cut if they were whole shanks they take quite a bit longer but these are, these are, you know, cross sections. So they should cook a little quicker, maybe an hour and a half tops. For something like a pot roast though, a lot of times I prefer to do those in the oven because they're gonna be in there for four or five hours, which uh, 
At which point, if, it, if you're doing it on the stovetop, A, you're, you've, you're taking up a burner, which you may need for something else. And also, you do run the risk of a lot of your water evaporating out. Even though the lid's on it, you're still, it's not a perfect seal, so you're still losing water to the environment. So short braises, I typically do on stovetop, and longer ones, I typically do in the oven. Part one of the griots, and part two is something to serve it over, which can be rice, and really I would prefer to serve it over rice, but I kind of feel like I have to do the classic recipe since this is sort of the introduction to griots, and because I've talked about rice a lot on the show, but we have not talked about grits. And the main reason that we haven't talked about grits a lot is because I'm not really the world's biggest grits fan. And that's the sound of a bunch of people turning off their radios in anger. Okay, a couple of quick chores before I make my grits. I'm gonna strain out the sauce because it's a little saucier than I'd like it to be. I'd like it to be a little more reduced. Not a whole lot, it's pretty thick, but reduction of a sauce is always a nice thing. Do just concentrate the flavor a little more. Also one of those things that non-cooks like to complain about because you wind up with lots of, lots more dishes than you ordinarily would because you gotta clean a strainer and usually an extra pot, sometimes an extra bowl, but we all know it's worth it. So I'm just gonna strain this out into a saucepan from my conical strainer, very useful device. Then, you know, if you're working in a really fancy restaurant, you might even throw out the mirepoix because it just get in the way. You might save a little bit of it for, for decoration, for a little garnish, or you might make up a fresh batch of Holy Trinity and garlic saute it and serve it on top. But we're not in a fancy restaurant. We're just at home. We're gonna eat this stuff. As they used to say, it's good bulk. All right, nice pile of beef shanks that are very lovely, tender, and will be quite delicious. Mmm. And some sauce that we're gonna get reducing. So let's go ahead and get the sauce reducing. And I'm not gonna add any salt or anything until the very end, and then I'll decide what flavorings we might need. And for now, let's get the grits going. And I'm gonna jump in. Who knows how much this is, cup and a half maybe, into a pot. Fill it with a little bit of water. I never add my water all at the beginning because I kind of want to approach the final texture of the grits as we move along. Grits are in something that will horrify Italians. Grits and polenta are the exact same thing and you can make them the exact same way. They just add, you know, different stuff at the end. They're the same. There's no difference between them. The only difference is that in the US, if you put grits on the menu, it costs $2, and if you put polenta on the menu, it costs $20. Unless you're eating at a really highfalutin southern joint in Charleston, in which case the grits cost $20 too. So, there we go. Grits going, a little salt in there. And they always say with polenta, like you're, you're supposed to add everything super slow, and they never mention this trick of soaking it in cold water first, not even really soaking, just dispersing it so that it doesn't clump up, but if you just put some water into it, it's never gonna clump up. It's the heat that makes things clump up because the heat is dissolving the starch, making the starch gelatinize, stick together, and then it's a huge pain. But if you just add a little cold water at the beginning, it'll never happen. So here we go. And <laughs> and I did say that I, I really, I'm not super into grits. And in general, that's the case, especially for breakfast. I'm, I don't really want a pile of cornmeal mush for breakfast. It's not my favorite thing. I just didn't grow up on it. 
It was just not, it's not something I ever really ate. So I don't have any nostalgia towards grits. And frankly, <laughs> it's not my favorite thing. I, I never get excited if I see something with grits on the menu. And whenever I eat them, I'm almost always more or less disappointed unless it's made with something really savory and uh, delicious like this. Then it mostly just serves as a, something to soak up the meal. I can wax nostalgic all day long about rice and all the ins and outs of rice and all the different ways of cooking rice and all the different things you can do with rice. But when it comes to grits, I am indifferent. And I know a lot of people get excited about them for the same reason they get excited about mashed potatoes because it's an excuse to eat an enormous amount of butter and an enormous amount of cheese. But eh, I like my starches to stand on their own. If you use good cornmeal, which I'm using decent stuff here, it's, you know, stone ground cornmeal, then, you know, they'll have a nice corny flavor. And I happen to be using yellow corn, which is another thing that will offend all the official southerners out there. Because official southerners always think that all corn in the south has to be white. But there are, in fact, pockets of yellow corn. And I'm from one of them. So I use yellow cornmeal because yellow cornmeal seems to me to be the correct cornmeal. My grandmother on my dad's side used white cornmeal. But my grandmother on my mom's side used yellow. And my mom used yellow, so I grew up mostly with yellow. And I always thought it was kind of weird when I went to my grandmother's house in North Louisiana. And she used white. It always kind of freaked me out a little bit. So I almost always use yellow cornmeal, and uh, I don't care what anybody else says. Got this beautiful chocolatey sauce reducing nicely, and now I'm just waiting for the grits to come to a boil. Try to think really of things to say about grits, because it is one of those foods that is so like rhapsodized among so many Southerners, and it's something I really honestly don't care about at all. <laughs> it's... This, it's just how it is, you know, like people think that shrimp and grits now is this like iconic New Orleans dish, but it's kind of more like an Eastern Seaboard Carolina thing. It wasn't something I ever saw, at least in the rest of South Louisiana growing up. I mean, a lot of people I knew grew up on grits and ate grits and love grits, but I really don't care about grits. I'd rather eat rice. I'm trying to <laughs> convey my utter lack of enthusiasm about cooking grits. And, I, and the thing is, I do like them in, the, in a dish like this because they are kind of bland and not very exciting whereas the sauce is really rich and it's beefy and there's all this stuff going on in it so it's a nice it's a good palate for what's coming but and you know i mean i like i'll i'll happily dig my spoon into some grits a couple spoonfuls anyway and then I'm kind of kind of done with it <laughs> at least i mean these are real grits it's not instant grits which instant grits are is like eating sheetrock compound and uh, that has to have butter and sugar. It's like totally inedible and gummy and gross. And a little more salt because grits do need a lot of salt. That's about the only thing that will really bring out the corn flavor. If you don't salt them enough, they're going to be pretty bland. Other than that, really, I mean, what do you say about grits? Because, I mean, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Some people say a lot about grits and... Whenever I'm reading some food article and they start talking about grits, I, my eyes always kind of glaze over. You know, they make a big deal about, oh, and then the next day you can do the fried grits. But as I talked about in the duck episode, I my preferred fried cornmeal is hot water cornbread, which is not grits. It doesn't taste anything like grits. It doesn't have the same gelatinous kind of super firm puddingy texture as grits, which I like. Oh, my grits are coming to a boil. This is pretty exciting. 
This is really all that grits is, you know, is standing in front of a pile of cornmeal mush and uh, stirring it and then periodically adding water because it absorbs a lot of water. You can also add chicken stock, which makes your grits taste mildly more exciting, I guess. And I probably will add some chicken stock here in a minute just to really amp up the flavor of my grits. Um, boy, I'll tell you the other, the, the actual, my, my actual corn soft corn dish that's really good for breakfast that I do like it's super good is called uh it's called kush kush and you just take cornbread regular old cornbread and you crumble it up in a bowl and you pour milk on top of it and you eat that and it's awesome way better than grits <laughs> especially for breakfast I just can't I don't know I can't imagine eating a big bowl of grits and then being worked up and really ready to start the day, you know, like I'm all fired up because I just ate some grits. But just grab some chicken stock, pour that in the grits. That'll really jazz these up. <laughs> the thing is, like, I'm not going to add a ton of butter to these. I will add a little bit because if you don't, then they they wind up being plain grits. <laughs> but... I'm not gonna add a lot. I'm not gonna add the amount of butter that a lot of people like to add. I'd rather eat plain grits than grits with a ton of butter and cheese, because there's other things that I'd rather do with butter and cheese. I just kind of feel like you put them in the grits and then it's like, what are they? You know, it's not bad actually with like some cane syrup. Cane syrup's pretty good with grits. I don't like adding like just plain straight sweet sugar to grits. And there's people that like that too. I mean, more power to them. I'm not gonna complain about what somebody else likes about grits but the only thing I'm less interested in in the cornmeal world than grits is having to listen to people complain that polenta is some kind of super fancy food you know because it's kind of a thing with in the U.S. just because something's foreign we assume that it must be like really fancy which is kind of what I feel happens with polenta because all polenta is is the same thing it's ground up cornmeal cooked in water which is as basic as you can get but polenta is Italian so if you give it an Italian name, it automatically becomes worth something. People talk about the French being snobby about food, but they're actually wrong. It's the Italians who are snobby about food. French people just like to eat and cook and talk about eating and cooking. The Italians, they like to gatekeep. So they're, we're going to get some angry calls from Italians about why polenta is not grits. Maybe we won't. I don't know. Maybe the world has moved past that. Anyway, stirring my grits. <laughs> Because you do have to sit here and you, you got to be at least aware of them. Because if you don't, then the skin will form on top and they'll start to stick to the bottom and then they'll burn. And then your cornmeal will taste like burned grits. And the only thing worse than grits is burned grits. Look at my sauce here. Now, this particular sauce, because it's made without a roux, mm. oh, it's good. Because it's made without a roux, it's a lot thinner than the sort of thing you would think about, you know, a lot of uh, South Louisiana sauces wind up being because they are typically have quite a bit of a root component. But this one is a lot more, a lot thinner. It's a lot, it's a little bit more of a modern sauce, honestly. It doesn't have any thickeners added to it other than whatever the, whatever gelatin content, the, the stock that you cook it in is going to give it. And then whatever leaches out of the griots, that's, that's the sum total of the thickness. So it actually works kind of nice with the grits because, you know, they're throwing off a lot of starch. So when you pour this on top of the grits, 
with their already gelatinized starch, then the, the grits themselves will sort of thicken into the sauce. So it really does work, and it kind of works. It works as good as, as rice, and it might even work a little better. You know, you wind up getting, especially if you make your grits a little soupy, then you wind up with a nice kind of soupy, soupy, saucy, corny sauce, and then your chunky bits of meat and your mirepoix or your holy trinity. And it all works really well. I mean, this is... This is probably the best grits dish that there is. Like, if, if, if I'm going to eat grits, I want it to be this. I don't want it to be pretty much anything else. Like, shrimp and grits is not that exciting to me. And I've had it at restaurants where it's supposed to be really awesome, and I keep trying to like it because people think it's some kind of classic, and I just really don't care about it. <laughs> but this, griots and grits, this is really good. So I can't actually get enthusiastic about these grits. For me, mostly... Grits slash polenta is something that I make when I've just been eating too much rice and I'm feeling lazy and I can't think of anything cool to make. <laughs> so I make grits or, well, I make grits, but then I call it polenta. And then, uh, then I feel like a real cook. I mean, this is just a bubbling pot of soupy cornmeal. <laughs> We talked about this a little bit in the uh, in the duck episode where we made the hot water cornbread. But there's a persistent, it's got to be something of a myth in, in the South that grits are made out of hominy corn. And they might be made out of the same kind of corn that hominy is made out of, but they are decidedly not made out of hominy. Because hominy is nixtamalized corn, which is corn that has been boiled in lye water, or which allows the corn to be ground into a, a paste. And it's a paste that will actually form a dough which regular cornmeal will not, as anyone who's ever tried, will not form an actual dough that you can actually, like, handle. You have to nixtamalize it first, and then grind it after that, and then what you get is masa, which does not at all have the same texture as grits. No matter how many times somebody tells you that because they're hominy grits, they're made out of hominy. Hominy is just the whole kernel of nixtamalized corn, and then you grind it into a paste, and that becomes masa. And masa is the real star of the corn show. Obviously, like, the tortilla is the greatest corn derivative that there is, if you don't want to count bourbon. But I actually, I would put the tortilla ahead of bourbon. The tamales up there, too, although I personally don't love tamales. I like them all right, but it, it depends a lot on the filling. A regular plain old cornbread is pretty high up on the list for me as well. And then hot water cornbread is pretty much dead even with regular cornbread. Although regular cornbread is a lot more versatile. You can do a lot of stuff with it. And then somewhere down at the bottom of the list of things that, that I like about corn is, is grits. <laughs> They're cooking here, you know. I mean, the other, one thing about grits is they are really versatile. And I don't mean that you can do a lot of things with them. I mean that you can, you can make them a, a lot of different textures. Some people like their grits kind of gritty. You know, they, they, they like them less cooked. They like them firmer, they like them a little drier, they like them where you can plop them into a, a shape on a plate, they like them a bit chewy, and then some people go the complete opposite direction and like puddingy grits where they're just totally runny and you have to eat them in a bowl. Because I don't feel strongly about grits one way or the other, I, I tend to be sort of in the middle. I like a little texture to them, which is why I really don't like them if they're made out of, out of the finely ground cornmeal. I only like them if there's a little bit of texture, which you kind of only get out of stone ground. But I don't really care too much if they're runny or if they're 
thick. I guess I kind of prefer them a little more thick, but again, I don't have strong feelings about it. But they're not like rice where, you know, bad rice is terrible. The range of appropriate rice textures is pretty limited, but the range of appropriate grit textures is very, very wide. I've just turned off my sauce because it reduced a little bit. I don't want to over reduce it or anything. So really the only thing left now is to finish making the grits, which is pretty much just a lot of stirring, <laughs> especially once we get to this point where I've added most of the water. People will argue about how much water you should add, but again, I, I kind of feel like that mostly involves your own personal desire for texture. If you want firmer, grittier, stand up on a plate grits, use less water. If you want softer bowl grits, use more water. There's not really even any science to that. It's just kind of pretty obvious. But cane syrup, molasses, that's good in grits. If you want to make like a sweeter grit, that works. I can dig maple syrup too, but I, I actually think cane syrup and molasses are both better than, than uh, maple syrup. Although maple syrup works. Other than that, I mean, they're really, they can pretty much, I think the reason a lot of, a lot of chefy types like them is because A, they're really, <laughs> it's really easy to make and it can also, you can throw a lot at it, and because it's so bland, it'll absorb a lot of the flavor. And, uh, you know, so you can throw all kind of crazy sauces and stuff on it. And it's mildly sweet, so you don't have to worry too much about sweetness in, your, in what you're doing. Because the corn will provide a little bit of sweetness, and there'll be just enough salt to sort of keep everything interesting. Scraping the bottom of this pot like I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel to find things to talk about, about friggin' grits. And, of course, the real grit heads make a big deal about the particular variety of corn. I'm sure it's important, but again, as a non-grit lover, I've never gone out of my way to get really top quality dried corn for grits. And it's possible that I'm missing, missing out, you know? I'm, I'm, I may just not understand the glory that is grits, and I may just be making it in this dish because that's what you generally serve this dish on. But that's how it is, you know? Not everybody can like everything. And like I say, it's not that I don't like grits. It's just, I would never go out of my way to order them. Sometimes I wonder why I have ordered the grits that I've ordered in the past. Usually it happens because I'm at a restaurant where nothing else looks appealing. <laughs> Which happens. It does happen. Or sometimes, you know, whatever, whatever the grits is paired with sounds really good. Usually what happens is that I'm at some restaurant and nothing on the menu sounds appealing and they have shrimp and grits. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll give it a try. And it's always fine. That's my feeling about shrimp and grits is that as a dish, it's fine. I don't think it's any kind of a classic though. I don't really understand why it's so popular. It's not like it's that great. I'm just making a bunch of enemies with this show. <laughs> a bunch of people who are going to be mad at me. But, you know, it's the last show of 2020. Sometimes you got to get it out. If the worst thing that happens is that somebody gets mad because I'm denigrating grits, nobody's going to get mad at that because everything else that's happened this year has been such a disaster that nobody's going to care about the grits. They're going to taste fine for this dinner. This is a dinner that I do make periodically. It's one that I will make again. It's one that I've occasionally made for you know, large dinners for a lot of, a lot of people. And it's always, it's always very popular. People really like it because it's good. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not lying. This is tasty. It does work really well with the grits. This is, this is the finest use of grits. And it is something I think about when I have short ribs or any kind of a beef like that, man, I, I totally, I'm like, hey, maybe I should make griots and grits. Outside of that, nah. I mean, I'll probably, I'm gonna have, I'm definitely gonna have some leftover grits tomorrow. So I'll probably fry some squares up and 
use them for something. I don't know what yet, but they'll get used. I'll eat it. I don't like making stuff and then just not eating it. Bubbling away. I guess the science part is that these are obviously at 212 degrees because they're bubbling and the starch is slowly gelatinizing and then that's about all the science that's... It's <laughs> about all the science we really need right now. There probably is some very fascinating history involved. In fact, I know there's very fascinating history about grits and why they became what they became. And that is the kind of thing that you do sort of have time to contemplate standing at the stove stirring grits, which maybe is another one of those reasons that professional cooks like them because you have time to think about the other dishes that you got to make for that night while you're stirring the damn grits. I mean, we're here with 25 minutes. It's probably the minimum amount of time that it takes. I'll taste them here in just a second. And I'm not going to make a big deal out of timing and ratios and all that stuff in this particular episode because a bunch of people will do it some completely different way that's much more to their taste and they'll get mad about it if I'm, if I'm too specific. So I'd just rather all the people who love grits be mad at me rather than just the ones who like the runny ones or just the ones who like the dry, stiff ones. Just the ones who like the gritty ones. Just the ones who like the perfectly smooth ones. I want all the grit people to be angry right now. The way that I'm trash talking their beloved grits because I'm a rice man. That's my starch. I will always return to rice. Grits are but a dalliance and not a very good one. Grits are any port in a storm. Rice, rice that's home. Potatoes is when you just need to eat something. So I just tasted it. Definitely, definitely could use a little more softening up. Definitely tastes like grits. Adding a little more salt. You know, the other problem with grits is that as starches go, you know, they're not that great. I mean, I think we all know that that you can't you can't survive on corn with your only as your only starch unless it has beans and unless it's been nixtamalized unless it's been processed with an alkaline substance and then in that case then yes you can and corn and beans are fantastic together but Native Americans the Mesoamericans the all the the Mexicans and all the basically everybody everybody knew that until the Europeans came over and they didn't know that and that's why. Italians died of, uh, which one was it? It was pellagra. Pellagra was endemic because they quit eating pasta for a while, particularly in northern Italy, and they switched over to polenta, and then they all got pellagra because they didn't know any better. So not only are grits one of the least interesting of the things that you can do with corn, they're actually they're very dangerous. This is a very dangerous food. It's worth taking a minute to consider the story of pellagra. It's an Italian word because the disease first became endemic in northern Italy, where corn became a major part of the diet of poor people. Its major symptoms are known as the four Ds, dermatitis, diarrhea, dementia, and death. It was apparent that the corn had something to do with pellagra, though no one was certain what. Germ theory had recently become accepted, so the leading theory was that some kind of bacteria was responsible, possibly transmitted by flies. No one was certain, though, and European efforts to combat it were only intermittently successful. Meanwhile, in the American South, the system of sharecropping developed to fill the hole left by the destruction of slavery. Tenant farmers, who were technically independent, worked fields for wealthy landowners, rapidly racking up debts for rent, supplies, and food that would never be paid off. The constant pressure of this debt meant that every square foot of cropland needed to be devoted to maximum income which in the South, at the turn of the century, meant cotton. The vegetable garden disappeared, and in its place, the sharecropper planted more cotton. 
the wealthy landowner needing to feed his technically independent workers, imported cheap cornmeal from the Midwest where improved milling techniques produced a finer, longer-lasting cornmeal with more of the nutrients removed. Variety in the diet dwindled until many rural southerners, black and white, were subsisting mainly on salt pork, molasses, and plenty of cornmeal. In 1906, pellagra appeared, first at a mental institution in Alabama and soon throughout the South. Between then and 1940, it killed 100,000 southerners, which back then was considered a lot. In 1914, the U.S. Public Health Service dispatched Joseph Goldberger to investigate the epidemic. Through careful experimentation and observation, including injecting himself, his wife, and other volunteers with blood from pellagra patients, he determined that pellagra was not an infectious disease, but one that was entirely due to nutrition. When he fed pellagra patients a more varied diet, including beans, fresh meat, milk, and eggs, they recovered. He discovered that simply adding brewer's yeast to cornmeal was enough of a nutritional boost to eliminate the problem. He did not ever learn the precise nutrient that was lacking because he died in 1929 and niacin was not discovered until 1937. In a sane world, the wealthy landowners and their political allies would have recognized that there were several simple, inexpensive solutions to the problems affecting their workers, excuse me, their independent tenant farmers. Bumping up the quality of the diet, taking a minuscule loss in rent profit to allow farmers to grow their own vegetables, there are any number of things that could have been done. But the South being the South, the landowning class instead wondered aloud why they should have to listen to a New York Jew who wasn't even born in America run down the diet of proud Southerners and so did nothing while their proud Southerners died. Goldberger's efforts to distribute brewer's yeast were moderately successful and carried on by the Red Cross after his death, but the epidemic did not end completely until 1940, when the newly discovered niacin was added directly to cornmeal at the mill, which required no effort from landowners. 2020 is nothing new. Ignoring simple public health guidelines for no particular reason is part of our heritage. <laughs> I generally, typically cook my grits not to the super soft puddingy consistency, but to the slightly grittier texture. And I think it's part because I do prefer that texture a little bit, and part because I'm trying to impart some kind of a texture to something that is mostly mush, and also because Grits really inspire me to prodigious laziness because even if I cooked them for an hour and a half like somebody's mythical grandmother always did to some perfectly smooth paste, there's still going to be grits and I'm still not going to be that excited about eating them. I mean, I'm going to be, I'm excited about eating these because they're going to be covered in this delicious sauce and beef shanks and all this other great stuff and they're going to go really well with this very saucy dish with a lot of things going on. They're going to serve as a nice backbone and a nice textural contrast to all this stuff. So for this dish, it's great. Also, buko is usually is kind of a similar dish, really. Not that different. And uh, it's usually served, or frequently served over, I shouldn't say usually, but it's frequently served over polenta. I mean, grits. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the pedigree is there. It's the same thing, and also buko is delicious. But it's not delicious because of the polenta, a.k.a. the grits. It's delicious because 
that gives the sauce body that it wouldn't otherwise have. So that's what we're that's what we're after here. We're after we're after a canvas is all, and we're fortunately fortunately we're almost there. Because let me tell you, standing around stirring grits is not my favorite culinary task, especially when I'm trying to come up with something intelligent to say about them. I just tasted them. A lot of the grits going out of them now. Now I've just got some nice yielding grains of the larger bits of corn. I'm basically there for me. So this is about a half hour, which to me is is a pretty solid amount of time. You know, you can, like I say, you can cook it longer and get it smoother. You can add more water and get it smoother, or add more of any kind of liquid or stock. I don't know that you'd want to make these with like wine. Some people make it with milk, which <laughs> two bland things aren't going to make anything more exciting. If you're going to make it with milk, you pretty much have to make sweet grits. So I'm going to call that, I'm going to call that good, I think. And we're going to, we're going to plate these up. I actually think I'm going to add a little more, you know what? Because I do want a little bit of soupiness for this. Because I want the sauce and the grits to unify. I want, the, I want these grits to almost act a little bit like a roux. And just be there to give the sauce like a nice body. So I'm going to add... A little bit more water just to loosen them up some. I'm gonna serve these in a bowl so that I can co-mingle the sauce and the grits and make them, yeah, make them nice and runny. Definitely runs off the, the spatula. I can make them even runnier, but I'm not gonna. I like that. I think this will go nicely. This will soak up a considerable amount of sauce, making a nice texture and it'll go very nicely. The, the, the sweetness, it'll, it'll mix well with what is a, frankly a pretty flavorful and quite delicious sauce and meat as well. This will be quite lovely. And a little extra hot sauce and a sprinkle of finishing salt and some parsley and green onions. And my griots and grits, despite my indifference to grits, I think that I think they would be accepted on a New Orleans brunch table. Maybe. They're pretty picky there. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Kotwar Ebane. This is the fifth episode of the fall 2020 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.